The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor for the District of Columbia. We're working every day to apply scientific insights and methods to improve district policies and programs. Learn more at thelab.dc.gov. We've all done it before. You're walking down the street, you reach for something in your pocket, and elbows a receipt for that thing you just bought, or a wrapper for that thing you just ate. And then, you never think about it again. Well, today, we're going to think about it. Where does it go? Where does it end up? Why does the city care? Why should you? I'm David Yoakum, director of The Lab at DC, and on today's podcast, we're talking trash with Julie Lawson, director of the Mayor's Office of the Clean City. Julie Lawson, welcome to the podcast at DC. Thank you. I, of course, want to ask you about the Office of the Clean City, but to maybe start with a bit of a more personal introduction, I'm curious about how you came to be drawn to working in this space to begin with. It's crazy to build a career out of trash. So I always tell the story about when I was a kid, my family would go camping and my dad would always make us not clean up just the trash we left, but all of everyone else's trash that was there. Always leave it better than you found it. And as I entered a career in publishing and journalism and then marketing and then started volunteering with an environmental organization, Surfrider Foundation, found a new passion for that kind of work. And um, totally as a volunteer, ended up organizing the community and educating the community about the benefits of what turned out to be our five cent disposable bag fee in DC and understanding that there's a deep need for prevention of litter and of plastic pollution and not a lot of organization around how to do that. And that one thing led to another to me trying to identify not just how you clean it up and why people clean it up, but also what, how people interact with trash. Why do people litter? Why do people pick it up? And what can we do to motivate community building around trash to solve bigger problems? So your first job was here in the district, trash related? Well, I was a volunteer for Surfrider, and then I started a nonprofit organization called Trash Free Maryland. The whole goal for me was to clean up the Anacostia River. 80% of the Anacostia watershed is in Maryland. So as much work as we do in D.C., city that I love and so many of us love, if we only work in D.C., we're not going to solve the problem. So we moved it upstream to Maryland, where there's great opportunities to organize other organizations, organize individuals, businesses, and really educate legislators on policies. And then really got interested in the behavior change aspects of it when I started working more in communities in Baltimore, where you have a post-industrial city with tremendous challenges, a high homicide rate, deep poverty, entrenched generational racism and infrastructure issues and expensive tax bills <laughs> uh, with very little tax base, and yet a lot of interest in building a community around this issue and some innovative technical solutions to it too. So we really started understanding how do you take a struggling community like that and organize around this. And then I've been able to bring a lot of those lessons into D.C. And so this is trash-free Maryland. That was trash-free Maryland. Doing how that. Do you, so how did you actually start that? And I probably asked this as, you know, not a lot of people have <laughs> the experience of starting a, this is a nonprofit, right? It was a nonprofit. <laughs> what, was, what, were, what were the opening weeks, month like? How did you actually go about starting it? 
Well, after the D.C. bag law passed in June of 2009, it was shortly after that, a legislator from Maryland said, okay, we want to actually do this in Maryland now. And can you help us from what you've learned? And got together with some colleagues who were professional environmentalists, whereas I was a volunteer working out of my house. And we said, well, if we want to really do this, we've got to go bigger than just bags. There's a lot of other contributors to trash pollution in our waterways. So we decided we wanted to organize other organizations and get them all rowing in the same direction. We also worked in Virginia for a little while where different advocates were pursuing different legislators to introduce different laws. And we thought this is a lot of wasted energy if people could just have that conversation up front and introduce a single one, you'd come in with a much larger coalition right from the get-go. So we tried to establish Trash Free Maryland as that authority figure in the state of Maryland. And it's a well-organized environmental community, so it was relatively easy to coordinate all of the advocates around single best practices. So it started out as a blog on Blogger, and just here's some articles about trash, here's a funny comic strip, here's like here's what we're doing to organize around this particular piece of legislation. Right out of the gate, we had about 35 organizations step up and say we support this kind of effort. I did it again just as a volunteer. In 2011, 2012, I took a job with Anacostia Watershed Society to try to start learning how to do a nonprofit, how to get my feet a little more literally wet in environmental work and continue building the reputation of the organization. And at that point, we started to realize that there were funding opportunities that could sustain it as a professionally run shop. So in 2013, we established a board of directors and started the process of incorporating and then carried on. And then in 2017, hired the first staff beyond me. And then I left. The board of directors at this point saw the potential for what the organization could become and decided not to fold the organization even though I had left and they hired a new executive director. And now we're excited to see a staff of two taking it and running with it. And it's fun to watch them from the outside now to see how they do. That's great. Well, I want to ask about some of the, maybe some of the example programs you did in Trash Free Maryland. Maybe start with the one you've mentioned a couple of times now about D.C. bags, which I guess isn't in Maryland. It's here in D.C., but what's the problem? So in 2008, uh, D.C. government and Anacostia Watershed Society did a survey, a visual trash survey of the pollution in the river. It was declared impaired for trash under the Clean Water Act, which is kind of a novel regulatory tool. Most of the time we talk about chemicals or um, other elements like nitrogen, phosphorus. So this literally involved a man and his daughter walking the streams and the banks of the river and counting trash. And what they found in particular on the tributaries, the streams feeding into the river, was that 50% of the trash by count was plastic bags. So Tommy Wells, who was council member at the time, decided he wanted to take some action on it. And so he proposed what at the time was the first of its kind in the country, a five cent fee on plastic and paper bags. And it was not to go after just the plastic bags, and get rid of plastic, but it was to shift us entirely from disposable to reusable. The only example we really had of whether this would work was in Ireland, where we were seeing about a 90% reduction in bag use based on their charge. And so proposed it here. The funding generated from it would go specifically to Anacostia River restoration, specifically removing trash from the water, so that if you did decide you needed to buy a bag, you were then 
contributing back to solving the problem that you were participating in. But really what we, we were trying to get at was not, we didn't want to raise money from it. We wanted to get in people's minds. Do you really need that bag? It's only five cents. Most people could afford it without even thinking about it. But do you need it? And we estimated it would take, after a year, we would probably see a 50% decrease in bag use. Turns out in three weeks, we had a 60% decrease. Fastest government program implementation ever. Eight years since it took effect. And we are still seeing significant decreases in the amount of plastic bags found in stream cleanups. Montgomery County followed our lead in 2012 and established their own. In D.C. and Montgomery County, we see a 72% reduction in the amount of plastic bags found in streams. We don't see that anywhere else in the region. So why do you think plastic bags specifically show up so much in the Anacostia? We do know that about three-quarters to 80% of the trash in the river overall is related to food packaging. It's us eating on the go. It's getting takeout. It's eating in a park and leaving it behind. All of the different things that we package our food in, and most of that is plastic. Especially when you get down into the water, most of that debris has gone through a storm drain system. So anything that's uh, degradable is going to fall, like paper, is going to fall apart. But the plastic, being so much more durable persists through the storm drain system. And so that's why you see so much plastic in the water. Plastic is a phenomenal material. It does everything we want it to do except go away. And so wrapping things that we only need for 12 minutes, like a grocery bag, making it out of a permanently durable material ultimately doesn't make any sense. Do you think most of that littering is inadvertent, that people just don't care? Like, what do we actually know about why people litter? That's a great question. So DC has been investing a lot of money for the last, um, I'd say 15 years on understanding why people litter to try to inform behavior change campaigns. We're really one of the leaders in the country on trying to understand the behavior behind it. And so it turns out that actual, what you think of as littering is still a relatively small part of the trash that we find on the street and what we find in the water. And when we talk about littering and litter campaigns, we're often thinking of the person who walks out of the 7-Eleven with their food and then they drop the package on the ground or they throw it out of the car. And those are the two behaviors that we call littering. What we don't talk about as much is, well, that public litter can is full, but if I just squeeze the cup in a little bit, I disposed of it properly, it's out of my hands until the wind blows and it falls on the street and then blows down a storm drain. So we don't have, obviously, really solid numbers on how much of each is happening, depending on how you define littering. Surveys that we've done both here and in other other parts of the country can get anywhere from 1% of people do it to 40% of people do it. So it's really hard to get a handle on it. Like un- unpack that for me <laughs> on, on how the different ways of defining it can well, lead to such different Well, because it's littering pouring out a liquid from your cup. If you've got a little bit of coffee in your cup and you pour it on the ground, is that littering? So is the 1% the most, what you might think of as the most egregious, egregious type of the person Walking who does down the street and just throw it on it, the ground. Just dumps it right. out. People don't think of cigarette butts as litter. So that's another chunk of it. Um, what is that? Why? why I, this is one that I've always has just baffled me about why cigarette butts don't seem to get the same sort of response when it comes to littering. Well, there's a lot more work going into it now trying to get people to contain their butts 
as it were. I think a lot of people don't understand that they're not biodegradable. They are a plastic fiber inside, and there's a lot more education about it now. But if you'd approach somebody 15 years ago, a lot of them would tell you that they thought it was cotton. I don't think that there's been an awareness of what's going on in there. But it actually gets to an interesting point about why people litter in general. And, you know, when we think about why people smoke, they usually start as teenagers and it looks cool and it's rebellious. And to some extent, that's why people litter. There's a rebellion factor to it. There's, you've already told me to eat right, not to speed, to pay my taxes, to buckle my seatbelt. Well, I want this thing out of my car. Nobody's going to care. I'm just going to throw it out the window. There is a laziness component to it. People will you know, studies show people, will, if, even if you pick up a piece of trash off the ground, if there isn't a corner can within 12 steps, you're not likely to make it all the way to the next one. You don't want to carry it that long, especially if it's not yours. And just dropping it and it being a culture of it, just getting it out of your hands. People who litter lack of sense of control in their lives. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of outside external impacts weighing on them, and it's a struggle to get through. And keeping their house and your car clean is one way of exerting some control. I can handle this much. Everything outside of that space is somebody else's problem. Hmm. And so when we're talking about the sort of people that litter, is this the sort of thing that everybody litters sometimes under certain scenarios but not others? Or do we actually know something about different types of people's propensity to litter? I would suspect that every single person has at one time or another, inadvertently littered. Whether it's because you had an old tissue in your pocket and you went to reach for something else and it slipped out and you didn't notice. I mean, how often do you find money on the ground? Nobody intended to drop that. But at the same time, I think that there are people that that's just the way that they do it. A colleague shared an anecdote with me a couple of years ago. I was riding the bus and there was a mother and her child and the child put the candy wrapper from what he was eating on the bus seat. And she said, no, we don't do that. Picked it up and threw it out the window. She was keeping her immediate space clean but throwing it out on the street and teaching her kid that that was the right thing to do. Right. So I think that for some people, that is just a way of life. So going back to the DC bag tax example, I think one way you can conceptualize that is sort of cutting the, in this case, the bags off from even existing to even have the opportunity to litter them or not. Right. Are there examples of more direct interventions to just try to prevent people from littering, not trying to prevent them from having the object they would litter? Well, taking it back to cigarette butts, um, you know, accessibility to ashtrays. We know in beach contexts, people are smoking on the beach. There are advocacy groups, environmental groups will go out and give you portable ashtrays. You have a place to put it instead of just sticking it in the sand where it gets lost. We do have some activities around that. But I would say that for the most part, our litter prevention activities have relied significantly on education, telling people don't do it trying to get them to understand the impact that they're causing when they do do it. And then we get to the other end where it's just, well, let's go remove it, whether mechanically or through volunteer cleanups or through capture devices. And we kind of, we do leave out that middle space of where else can we catch it. But I think that that a lot of that just comes from how many sources we're dealing with. How many people, you mean? Right. I mean, I like to think about if in theory all of us are potential litterers, we're dealing with 700,000 pol- potential polluters and all of the different ways that we could be contributing, whether it's dropping it or it blows out of your car or falls right. out of your pocket. Do you have a sense of 
how much litter is coming from individuals versus what comes to mind are, you know, giant dumpsters behind a restaurant or businesses and firms that just have more quantity of potential litter? Yeah, I don't think that's been quantified, but I do definitely notice um, when I would drive from D.C. to Annapolis all the time and I would be getting on the ramp from South Dakota Avenue onto New York Avenue and getting onto 50, that ramp where everybody picks up speed. And it's also the highway where all of the trucks are going to take D.C.'s trash out to the suburbs is filthy. And I think that's because you're picking up speed and the stuff that's in the back of the truck is blowing out. And the same token, we're really grateful to have trees there because if we didn't, it would be blowing straight into the river. And the trees are acting as a natural trash capture. As dirty as it looks, we're lucky they're there. I'm going to have a lot of questions about like how government picks up trash, but maybe to pivot into this, what is the office of the Clean City? So it turns out that there are about 20 agencies in D.C. that deal with trash, and they are all very good at what they do, and they don't necessarily always look up and see what others are doing. So my job is to help them say, you in this agency and you in this agency are doing similar things in different groups or different neighborhoods, and I can help you both do your job better. So I do a lot of this interaction across agencies, but also understanding what is really hitting the ground for the constituents and what are the needs that they have that we're not quite meeting and how can we tweak the system to make everybody work a little bit better so that it solves the problems for everybody. What sort of agencies are we talking about? Well, obviously, the you know one easy ones that come to mind are Department of Public Works, Department of Energy and Environment, DC Health, because when you talk about trash, you'd naturally talk about rats. But we're also de- talking to 311, and Department of Small and Local Business Development, and Department of Housing and Community Development. We even have a really great conversations with Metropolitan Police Department around how we enforce illegal dumping. So there's a lot out there. Right. So take me, we're on my street, and there's my trash can, maybe there's some litter around. I go to bed, I wake up, I come back, sometimes miraculously it's all gone. Give me an inside window into what is happening from the government side, who are the different entities and people that are managing this flow of trash and litter whenever it's not in the right bins? So on your most basic situation, single family house with a green trash can and a blue recycling can, and you have weekly street sweeping, you're gonna have your cans picked up by Department of Public Works, Solid Waste Division, and then street sweeping's gonna come by once a week from March to October to scrub the street for what's in the gutter. DC water is going to come down and clean out your storm drain when it's full of bottles and other stuff that didn't get picked up by the street sweeper to prevent a flood and to prevent that from ending up in the deeper in the sewer system and eventually into the river. You know, you're responsible for what's in your tree box. You, even though that's public space, whatever's in there is on the resident to keep clean. Tree box, you mean the little, the little like if I have like a little bit of between grass. Between the sidewalk yeah, and right, the curb. Right. Also, then once on the other side of the sidewalk, that's your front yard. Then when you're in the house, we've got new recycling rules on what you can recycle. It's much more expanded than it was a year ago. Is there a particular team that actually patrols for just litter that's separate from the trash crew, the recycling crew, the street sweep crew? We do. So Department of Public Works has the Solid Waste Education and Enforcement Program, SWEEP. They have inspectors all over the city. They go out and they will do both residential and commercial properties to look at 
You know, are you maintaining the public space? Is your can out at the right time? Don't put it out before six. Are your lids closed on your cans? That's important too. Don't bag your recyclables. Those plastic bags gum up the works. And then if if you got the warning and you didn't fix the problem, they will issue tickets. They also enforce um, in commercial properties, especially where, so we're talking about for commercial, we mean multifamily. So that's four units or more in the property or businesses. And we have new rules about how your dumpsters have to be handled, how your hauler has to report to the city what they're collecting, which is going to be really great for us going forward to understand a larger picture of how much trash we're dealing with and how it's being recycled and where our opportunities are to divert stuff from the landfill or incinerator. And so they play a great role in just keeping tabs on all of the public realm in terms of trash, litter, and leaves. Do issues of water and air fall under your scope too? So we also work with DOEE, obviously. They're looking at Department of Energy and Environment on how our activities related to trash affect water quality in the city. Um, I'd mentioned the Anacosta River is impaired for trash under the Clean Water Act. We do have federal regulations requiring us to remove a certain amount of trash from the river every year, and they are in charge of making sure we do that. They are obviously focused on what gets into the water, and DPW is more focused on what's on the streets, and then I try to bridge the two. One of the gaps we've been able to fill is that our neighborhood cleanup activities, we haven't been tracking how much trash we're cleaning up or what kinds of trash we're cleaning up. Most of that data is collected at stream cleanups where they um, have a tighter group of volunteers. And one of the things we're trying to do is get more of that data from the neighborhoods because we can still report that as trash we're removing from the watershed. And it also will give us a better understanding of the trash that's actually in front of people's homes and that they're seeing on a regular basis. And how can we then look at policies to tackle that, even if it's different from what's in the water? Where does the trash go? Away. (laughs) That's a lie. There is no away. You know, obviously if it's litter and it ends up uncaptured, depending on what part of the city you're in, if if it's in our separated sewer system, which is in the far western and far eastern and northern and southern parts, basically not the downtown core, it's going into the storm drain and straight into a local waterway, whether that's the Anacostia or in my neighborhood, we're getting into Sligo Creek or even crossing state lines to do that or into the Potomac, and it's just going in unfettered. In the downtown core, where we have the combined sewer Sometimes it's going to the wastewater treatment plant, Blue Plains, and captured there and pulled out. But during heavy rain events, it's also being flushed straight into the water. What about just the regular trash? Regular trash? Uh, Well, we have both a landfill operation and incineration that that goes to. And then we work with a variety of recycling facilities in the region to handle the different materials that we're recycling. What do you think is the right balance of responsibility between government, all the various agencies that are doing this cleanup, and everyday people, residents? We're all contributing trash or solutions to it. And this is one of the approaches we're trying to pursue within the Office of the Clean City is that we all play a role. Residents have a role, businesses have a role, and the government has a role. And what my office is trying to do is make sure everybody can play their part more easily. How can we help residents keep their place clean? How do we get them 
to connect with their neighbors and keep their neighborhood clean. But how do we also support businesses? If you have a busy alley with a bunch of restaurants on it, you could be looking at 12 hauling trips a day. And while you ask whether I work on air quality, I, I don't. But 12 hauling trips a day is causing the people who do work on air quality an issue. <laughs> so if we can organize these restaurants who are not necessarily talking to each other about how do we share a dumpster or how do we go in together on a trash compactor and reduce those hauling trips, if we can help them sort that out, then we're going to solve their problems and air quality problems as well as just traffic problems. I assume it would also be cheaper for them if they're going in on a consolidated pickup. Yeah, that's the thinking, the logistics of trash contracts. You know, everybody's in their own trash contract and trying to maneuver how to coordinate those when they may have opened at different times. Complicated. Right. Well, so we've talked some about why people litter and what we might be able to do to curb that. What about the flip side on what motivates people to pick up litter, even if it's not their own, because there are adopt the block. Like there's these, these examples of neighborhoods that kind of, I don't know if police is the right word, they pick up for themselves. What do we know about kind of the psychology of when people feel compelled to do that? Yeah. So I really dug into this in Baltimore because like, as I said, there's so many different avenues that trash can take to become street litter that aren't just the pure definition of littering. And so if you only go after the pure definition of littering, you're not going to solve the problem. And ultimately, there will always be something that ends up there. And so your better bet is to instill the behavior of cleaning up. I also really wanted to avoid the idea of talking about litter as in a don't do it because you're assuming then that littering is a social norm and you're trying to flip a social norm, which is really hard. If you're telling people don't litter, you're assuming that they already are and that everybody does it and that they're going to be a better person for not doing it. And, you know, if you abstain from something, it often makes you want it more. So we didn't want to tell people don't litter. We wanted to give them a more positive replacement behavior, pick it up. And that would get at their mind about not littering while also cleaning up the stuff that just blew out of a truck. So we did focus groups in Baltimore to understand what would get you to pick up and why don't you pick up. And it was a lot um, of, I feel like I'm the only one and I can't possibly keep up with it by myself. And there's just so much. And But at the end of the day, they also know, they would say, like, I got through my day and they'd run off this long list of personal struggles that was just their daily life. And because we were really trying to understand, the research was really focused on people who were not already civically engaged. And we didn't want people who go to community meetings. We wanted people who just go to work and go home and raise their kids. And they would talk on their own, would bring up their neighborhood concerns were crime and schools and trash on the street was bringing down their quality of life. And when we got them talking about it, they could see themselves picking up and see themselves feeling better for doing it and see themselves banding together with their neighbors. And so what we're trying to do in the Office of the Clean City is we have a lot of groups that are involved in trash government, nonprofit, businesses, individuals, part either on their own or as part of a larger program, and let everybody know that they're all out there and you're not alone. Even if you're out there by yourself on your block picking up, you're not the only one anywhere. And so bringing some unity to these programs, even if it's as simple as a consistent logo on all of the materials or coming together on one day 
to have everybody come out and participate, but to start thinking that we are all in this together and we all do play a part and we need you just as much as you need us to do this. Do you think there are some small things that might prevent neighborhoods or streets from coordinating around this? I mean, the kind of thing that comes to mind is that there's a park I'm nearby that if we went and cleaned it up and had five, I don't know, there's not that much litter, but you know, there is three or four different big bags of garbage. Like, is it legal to stick it next to the garbage bin? I know I can't like stuff it in my bin. You know, if there's some signals of if you wanted to organize this as a community, what's the right way to do it? Where do you put your stuff? If there's graffiti, does the city give you some tools to paint over it? Like what are, what are the sort of tools like this that could help people organize? So that's one of the other things we're trying to do to remove the barriers and make it as easy as possible. It's not, the things that you mentioned all actually fall into, again, a bunch of different agencies. And if you as a constituent wanted to try to tackle each of those things, you'd be spending a lot of time on Google. So we're trying to pull together all of the types of public realm issues that people think about as quality of life in their neighborhood and at least put... Even if we can't fulfill the service request for you, we can get the link for how you do it all in one place on one page. So if you've got a rat issue and you need a new trash can and there's graffiti, you don't have to find three different agencies to do that. The other thing we're doing is to get people to think that cleaning up is easy or know that cleaning up is easy is, you know, if you've stopped using plastic bags because five cents was a good reminder to bring your reusables, but you need a bag to clean up the trash outside. We're putting uh, cleanup bags in every DPR rec center starting in April. They're small. They're about the size of a hotel laundry bag intended that you cannot possibly fill it up so full that you can't carry it with you a little ways. So hopefully after you're done, you can take it home and it will fit in your house trash can, your green bin, or you can take it back to the rec center and they'll take care of it for you. They've got a dumpster. If that doesn't work, we've also got a new 311 request that you can use, but that's the last option. What about for graffiti? For graffiti, DPW does remove off of commercial property. You just have to provide permission. I think this is more of like a philosophical question. So a book I recently read is called The Wizard and the Prophet. I don't know if you've seen this yet, but it articulates sort of two sometimes competing visions for sustainability, just kind of how we treat the planet, really. One about restraint and trying to conserve, to not use resources as much. Another approach, much more technological, that the population is growing, we're going to be using things, and we can continue to use technology to sort of help meet you know, food needs, to do more with energy, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm curious how you sort of, you know, balance your, your time even on how you approach tackling a problem like cleanliness in a city, going for individual behaviors and trying to sort of prevent versus time spent investing in cleanup and technologies to solve the back end of the problem. Cleaning up trash gets exponentially more expensive the further downstream it gets. Even just looking at cleaning up the trash on your block, that's free. A volunteer cleanup at the stream takes a little more resources to get a couple hundred people out there, and you've got to motivate them and feed them and supply them. And installing a trash trap, we have nine of them in D.C. on our tributaries to capture the trash mechanically. Those rent about $100,000 a year to maintain each. 
the trash wheel in Baltimore cost $800,000 to build and install and costs another 125000 a year to keep going. We're getting more and more expensive in our capture devices, right? And then the proposed ocean cleanup project, this mile-long boom in the Pacific Ocean, is a multi-million dollar endeavor that still hasn't been proven to work. So when you're looking for bang for your buck, maintaining along the way with that cleanup outside your house and reducing the amount of stuff that we're using in the first place, don't get single-use coffee cups every time if you go to the same coffee shop every single morning as a habit. Make it a new habit to take a reusable cup that you don't have to fill up your can with. Working backwards to reduce the amount of impact that we have is ultimately going to be cheaper. Are there more kind of everyday suggestions like that to where if you're listening now and feeling particularly motivated, you know, some things people could start doing tomorrow to help on this front? In my work bag, I have two reusable shopping bags, bamboo, fork, spoon, knife, chopsticks, and a steel straw, and a metal bottle that can hold either coffee or water, and a cloth napkin. And it fits nicely all next to my laptop and my wallet, and it's very easy. Those are pretty simple. Yes, it took time to build up to all those behaviors, and I don't always have them with me, but planning ahead a little bit. You know, I I do a lot of public speaking and talking to neighborhood groups and environmental groups, and when I'm talking to a group that I realize is the choir and they don't really need to be told about litter so much, my advice to them is don't eat out so much. Especially don't get takeout and take it home. You could reduce the amount of packaging that you're using just by thinking about how you eat. It would make a big difference. Right. What about for businesses or owners of large buildings, maybe more generically? Being honest about your, sorp- your separation of the trash. If you say that you're recycling the material, actually recycle it because then people will use it. And I think that's one of the great advances we've had in the last year as we've in D.C. government is that a year ago, if you went into a restaurant or a commercial building, your workplace or a hotel or anything like that, what they said they recycled was not necessarily the same list of things that you could recycle at home. And by standardizing that list citywide across residential, multifamily, and commercial and food businesses, we're going to create a mental consistency for individuals on, well, this is recyclable, not, oh, is this recyclable and what should I do with it? And once you start thinking that way, you're going to start noticing how much more you're producing and maybe identify places where you can cut back. Looking forward over the next, you pick the time horizon, what are the big opportunities in your mind and the big things you're going to try to tackle through the office? Changing the way that we handle some of the other public realm complaints, like how we respond to rats, how do we respond to pet waste, and how do we think about what our own responsibilities are and empowering people to take the lead on those solutions instead of just expecting the solution to come to them. What do you have in mind? Well, I mean, right now, if you've got a rat problem on your block, you can ask your neighbors get together and ask for one abatement team to come out and tackle it rather than 
reporting your own individual property for needing treatment, but you've got to talk to your neighbors to do that. So we're going to build in as many opportunities for you to talk to your neighbors as possible. <laughs> we are really trying to grow the Adopt-A-Block program. We have 85 organizations already participating in it, covering about 700 blocks in the city. Um, how many more can we get? And can we collect more data from them? so that we understand better what the trash problem is in our streets and how much are these volunteers removing. And we're going to incentivize that great work where our top achievers at the end of the year are going to get great prizes and recognition because they really are making a difference in the city and we should acknowledge that and celebrate it. Beyond that, we're really hoping to work with our business improvement districts and our restaurants on helping to give businesses the tools that they need to manage their trash better, both inside and out back. My concern is primarily Outback, but what can we do inside to make Outback better? Looking at how we use our parkland and or how our parks interact with this. What are dog owners doing? Are they how do they walk their dogs? Are they letting them run off leash in an open field? They may not be keeping up with cleaning up after them and what can we do to fix that? There's a lot coming up. What's your vision for I'm not sure exactly how to ask it, like how clean a city should be at any given time. Like what are reasonable expectations for a typical street corner, park, pick your public space? I think about this a lot. I remember my freshman sociology class in college where they say that in regardless of the society, there will always be outliers. <laughs> and so even if you set a standard of 100% cleanliness, you can never get there. Once you think you've established that standard, somebody will defy it. It may not be anywhere near the standards that we're used to now, but it will not be the standard that you believe you were trying to achieve. So I don't know that we can say that. The What we have, you know, the best numbers we have in terms of the Anacostia River are we're just trying to ensure that the water is safe for recreation and fishable, swimmable, and how much trash do we have to remove to achieve that goal? So I think that if we take the same sort of narrative standard to our neighborhoods and what feels clean, what feels tidy, what feels good to you is the standard we're trying to achieve. Julie, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. The podcast at D.C. is brought to you by The Lab at D.C., an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. The show is hosted by David Yoakum and produced by Carissa Minnick. Check out our archive of conversations on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Podcasts.